You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing who killed Debbie Wolfe. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. The countdown to Christmas is getting smaller and smaller each day. I cannot believe that there are only three more days until Christmas. I feel like this year has gone by so quickly. It's just flown by, but it's also gone so slowly. Like the days are slow, but the months have been fast. Um, maybe this is an unpopular opinion. I don't know. Maybe not. But I love Christmas Eve a million times more than Christmas Day. Christmas Eve, the whole day is just magical and filled with anticipation. I love that my kids are super excited and I love to see the joy and wonder in their eyes and on their faces. After my kids have gone to sleep, I love turning all the lights off and sitting by my tree with a cup of hot chocolate and just relaxing and basking in the beauty and the stillness of it all. Christmas Day, I'm always exhausted. I'm stressed out. I'm constantly cleaning up messes and trying to find batteries that were not included. Yes, Christmas Eve is definitely where it's at. Last week, we covered the last episode in season two of Unsolved Mysteries, the new recently released Netflix edition. Um, So we are going to discuss a case today that you may not have heard of, um, but maybe you have. Uh, This case, I believe, was brought to my attention by a listener. I think it was Maria. So Maria, if it was you, thank you so much. If it wasn't you, Maria, whoever I forgot, I'm so sorry, but whoever sent this to me, thank you for sending it to me but I'm pretty sure it was Maria. If you have any cases that you want me to research and cover on this podcast, hit me up on um, Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram. I want to cover cases that y'all are interested in, so any help that you guys want to send me is obviously always appreciated. All right, so I first began really digging in and researching for this episode about a week ago. And since I began my research, I have not been able to get this case out of my head. It has been weighing heavily on my mind. It is so mysterious, incredibly sketchy, completely bizarre. I I literally just can't even handle and describe to you how crazy it is without just getting right in. Um, this case is so fascinating. It is a textbook example of just botched police work from the beginning. Um, It's also timely for the holiday season. Debbie Wolf was discovered over Christmas break about 35 years ago this upcoming um, Saturday. And there has unfortunately um, been no resolution at all, even after these many years later. Unfortunately, criminals you know, they don't take vacations. I wish they did, but they don't. I recently read an article that disclosed that, in fact, most abductions and murders and domestic abuse um, disputes occur over 
the holidays, most likely due to the fact that people have work off and it won't be noticed that they're missing for a little bit longer than normal, giving the perpetrator a bit more time to cover up their tracks and to evade police. And while petty crimes like vandalism and theft are on the rise, especially during the winter season, like home invasions and stuff, violent crimes and kidnappings are um, on the decline during Christmas. And I'm one, uh, because those types of crimes increase during the summer months. So there's more murders in the summer months than there are in the winter months. Um, Another fun study that I read recently stated that there is a correlation between murders and ice cream sales. And while this certainly is an interesting correlation, let's not get it twisted. Correlation is not the same as causation. The article is basically stating that as the temperature rises, so do ice cream sales and murders. And maybe that's because when it's hotter outside, people are more irritable. (laughs) I certainly am. I definitely have a heat intolerance. Like I get so angry when it's hot outside. So I don't really know why I live in a desert, but whatever. Um, So this this, like correlation makes a lot of sense to me. Anyways, those are just two funny things I've read lately, but I know you guys are probably super anxious to learn about this case today, so I'll quit jabbering on about silly articles and we'll just get right into it. So, who killed Debbie Wolf? It was late December 1985 in the quiet town of Fayetteville, North Carolina, when 28-year-old Debbie Wolf's body was found at the bottom of a pond near her secluded home where she lived alone with her two beloved pups, Mason and Morgan. Authorities immediately believed that this was an open and shut case of suicide. However, those closest to Debbie knew that this could not at all be the case and believed with all of their hearts from the beginning that Debbie had obviously been the victim of foul play. In 1985, Debbie Wolf was kind of living her best life. Her relationship with her boyfriend was going incredibly well and it was getting more serious. Um, She lived in a charming secluded cabin off of a main road, which she was able to afford because of a nursing job that she had and that she absolutely loved. She was working at the Fayetteville Veterans Hospital. She was adored and highly respected not only by other staff members, but also her patients. Debbie and her mother, Jenny, had a super close relationship. They had just spent Christmas together. Jenny said that Debbie seemed completely normal during the uh, during the Christmas festivities. She didn't seem like her mind was someplace else. She was totally engaging with the family and seemed really happy. Nothing seemed off about her behavior to anyone. Jenny had gotten Debbie a stuffed unicorn, which... If you're over the age of 10, you shouldn't be getting any more plush toys, in my personal opinion. I find that incredibly weird, but whatever, do you? And Debbie had gotten her mother (laughs) some male and female novelty dolls, like erotica toys. (laughs) Also, for her mother's 50th birthday, she had gone out and hired strippers. (laughs) So it goes without saying that they had a very close and silly dynamic. I am a bit disappointed that I already got my mom something this year for Christmas, but I'm going to keep these two ideas in mind for her birthday that's coming up in March. (laughs) 
Debbie had to work a holiday shift on Christmas Day. So she goes into work. It's just a normal, typical day. And as she's leaving, she wishes her coworkers a Merry Christmas and heads home after a tiring day around 4 p.m. The next day on December 26, she didn't show up for her 8 a.m. shift and immediately alarm bells are going off for her coworkers. It was incredibly unusual for Debbie to miss a shift, especially without giving some sort of a heads up. Her coworkers were obviously pretty concerned. They tried calling her phone and they didn't get any answer. So they decided that they were going to call Jenny, who is Debbie's mom. And Jenny is also immediately concerned. Debbie has had always been a very reliable and responsible person. And this was just completely out of character. Jenny attempts to call Debbie several times and it just keeps going straight to voicemail, which if you are into true crime, you know that that's never a good sign. So without wasting much time at all, Debbie calls up a family friend named Kevin Gordon or Gorton and the two head over to Debbie's home together. Jenny was fearing the worst but hoping for the best. When Jenny and Kevin arrived at Debbie's home, they immediately knew that something was not right. Debbie had always been described by friends and family as an incredibly meticulous and tiny person, and the home when Kevin and Jenny arrived was in total disarray. There were empty beer cans discarded all over the front yard, and her two dogs, who were her beloved fur babies, had been left outside wandering the property and had not been fed in quite some time. Upon their initial search of the rooms, they found that Debbie's purse had been shoved underneath her bed in like a really weird fashion. After searching the home and the property and not finding any clues that would indicate where Debbie could be, they decided to check her answering machine to see if maybe they could gain some information from listening to the messages. However, by listening to the answering machine, it only left them with more unanswered questions and it also left them thinking that this was not going to be a day that ended happily there was only one message on the answering machine and it was left by a man unknown to both jenny and kevin i'll play the message for you now and then i'll tell you what it said i want you to be able to hear the voice but it is a bit difficult to decipher because After all, this is a message that was left on an answering machine in 1985, so obviously the quality is not going to be the greatest, but I really want you to get a feel for it. Hey, Deb, Mitch here at work today. I just wonder how you're doing. Uh, If you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at day 227007, or give me a call home tonight. Uh, You've been out a lot of days. Maybe worry when you miss another one. Okay, so if you weren't able to understand that clip, I wouldn't blame you. It is from 1985. I will read it to you right now. So this is basically what it said. It said, hey, Deb, missed you here at work today. Just wondering how you're doing. If you're able, give me a call up here at the ward. I'm at 822-7007 or just give me a call at home tonight. You've been out a lot of days. You made me worried when you missed another one. I just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. Okay, 
So at first glance, this voicemail might seem like it's harmless. It might just seem like it's from a concerned friend. However, this voicemail left Jenny and Kevin feeling uneasy because not only was it an unfamiliar man's voice, but what he was saying in the voicemail was completely incorrect. When Jenny and Kevin arrived at Debbie's home, she had only been unaccounted for for like a few hours. And this man was saying that Debbie had been out of from work for several days, which was simply not true. She had gone to work the day before for her Christmas shift. Beep, 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 beep. I'd like to interrupt this podcast for a brief PSA. <clears throat> this is what the French call le red flag. That is all. Beep, 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 beep. To Kevin and Jenny, it seemed like this man had something to do with Debbie's disappearance and that he had left this voicemail in an attempt to cover his tracks. Albeit, he left the message a bit too early because immediately it was suspicious. Maybe the man thought that it would take longer for Jenny's co-workers or family members to notice that she was missing. He must not have known how well-loved she was to those around her. After hearing the message, they decided to go to the pond on Debbie's property to see if there might be any clues or signs there. They really just walked along the perimeter of the lake. They didn't have like scuba gear with them or anything. So that's all they could really do at that point. Um, and after they did that, they needed they decided that they needed to call the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department and get them involved. This wasn't really, there really wasn't anything else that they could do. The first officer on the scene was Captain Jack Watts, who brought some bloodhounds with him. So initially, the disappearance seems like it was taken seriously. However, upon arrival, and apparently for no particular reason other than just pure laziness or stupidity or whatever, Captain Jack Watts was under the impression that Kevin and Jenny had done like a proper thorough search of this lake and therefore did not think it was necessary to get the divers out to the scene. Right off the bat, this is just bad police work. Yeah, Kevin and Jenny said that they searched the lake, but it was more of like a cursory search more than anything at the edge of the pond. Jenny is like 50 plus years old. I don't really know why they thought she had like scuba'd out into the middle of the lake in search of her daughter. They really needed the big guns and they totally dropped the ball by not asking them to come right away. Plus, even if Jenny and Kevin were divers and had the necessary equipment to search the lake, the police officers should do their own official search anyway because they don't know what happened to her. For all the police officers know, at this point, Jenny and Kevin could be involved. They really need to be doing their own police work and their own investigation and not just relying on the work or words of witnesses. Just... Pure lazy police work, in my opinion. But again, it was the 80s in a small town. I'm guessing there are probably not many disappearances in the area, so maybe they just really didn't know what to do. I guess I can give them the benefit of the doubt at this point instead of jumping the gun that they were doing really shoddy police work with malicious intent. I don't think that they were doing it maliciously, at least not at this point. After Captain Watts searched the property with the dogs, he didn't have any luck, so he informed Jenny and Kevin that they would have to wait three full days, 72 hours, before the police department would be able to declare an official investigation and really, like, get into it, which we now know is seriously a terrible idea. 
We were so stupid in the 80s. I'm glad I wasn't alive then because people seemed like they were dumb. (laughs) Anyways, everyone knows and all the research shows that the first 48, the first 24 hours are so, so very critical. But again, it was the 80s. I'm so glad I wasn't alive in the 80s because if I had gone missing, I have zero confidence that they would have been able to find me. Anyways, the next day, Debbie's father retired, um, who was a retired Navy man named John Edwards, went to Debbie's home to feed her dogs and check in on them. While he was there, he found a short-sleeved nurse's uniform, like, laid out perfectly on the floor. It's unclear if this was there when Jenny and Kevin were searching the house, and perhaps it was simply overlooked, but as a mom myself... A somewhat neurotic mom myself, I have a very hard time believing that Jenny would overlook anything at this point. So in my gut, I believe that this uniform being laid out on the ground is most likely a new development. It would be another five full days until an official investigation began. Yep, you heard me right. Five full days. And I'm not really sure why it was five and not three, like the police department told them, but five full days. Um, And even on December 31st, when the official investigation began, police officers were still under the assumption that the pond had been properly and thoroughly searched by, you know, a 50-year-old woman. And so not a single one of them had the idea to get some dang divers over to the scene. On the first day of the investigation, the officers just kind of like meandered around the property with some dogs and then they nonchalantly made their way over to the lake surveying the edges of it as if somehow if there was a dead body in there it was just gonna pop out and make itself known to them like a freaking terrifying jack-in-the-box or more like a jack-in-the-pond this is not at all surprising to me as I'm guessing considering the time period the forest was made up of mostly men and if men are in the 80s are anything like my husband, they think anything that they're searching for should just pop out at them when they're looking for it. I cannot tell you how many times my husband has been looking for like peanut butter or his keys or whatever and I just see him open a drawer or a cabinet and just stare at it like for five minutes without moving anything around. I'm like, how are you going to find anything by just staring into the depths of the cupboard? You have to move things around, you big dummy. Ugh, men, why they even have hands is beyond me. Anyway, that was the extent of the police search. Jenny even mentioned to the officers if it might be possible for them to sequester like a little paddle boat to, you know, go over into the middle of the lake and get a better look of it, but was essentially told by the officers that it was was just kind of too late now. It's been five days and uh, we'll just call you if anything turns up. Jenny was understandably not satisfied with the police department's investigation, and I'm using the term investigation loosely. She decided to hire her own dive team to get their little booties in the pond to search it for her, because women get the work done. So, on January 1st, 1986, Kevin Gordon, Gordon, I keep saying Gordon, Gordon, um, So on January 1st, 1986, Kevin Gorton, who was a search and rescue volunteer, and his friend, another fellow search and rescue volunteer named Gordon Childress, see, now you know why I'm mixing up Gorton and Gordon, um, they went over to Debbie's house and they searched the pond. After only two minutes of searching, Gordon 
Childress was able to identify two sets of footprints in the thick mud of the pond, along with what appeared to be strange drag marks. He followed the drag marks about 10 meters or so into the lake, and the lake would have been about five feet deep at this point. It is here that he finds Debbie's body. And he doesn't just find Debbie's body. Debbie's body was in a 55-gallon rusted-out barrel. It was like a it was just like a huge rusted out barrel that they stored that you could like store firewood in, I guess. Immediately upon finding Debbie's body, they were totally freaked out and they called the sheriff's department who came out and officially identified that the body was that of Debbie Wolfs. On January 2nd, an autopsy was conducted by Dr. William Oliver. Since Debbie was found in a pond, it had been assumed that Debbie had drowned. However, after the autopsy report was released, no water was found in her lungs. There was only about a teaspoon of water in her upper bronchial area. There was also no froth or foam in her mouth, which is typical of victims of drowning if they are alive upon their submersion. Her body was in a relaxed position with her eyes and mouth shut, which is in complete contrast to the way a typical victim of drowning is usually found. Most, if not all, are usually found with their eyes open in panic and often their mouths as well as they attempt to gasp for air. The muscles are usually found um, to be in a tense-like position, um, even if it's like something that the victim wanted to do. So if, even if it's a suicide, this is usually how drowning victims of suicide are found as well. Because as you're like, drowning the body panics the body wants to breathe and so it struggles and then that's how you're found however debbie's body did not show any indication of a panic struggle a toxicology report was also conducted and it was found that no drugs or alcohol were in her system at the time of her death dr oliver did find a few abrasions that he noted on the autopsy report um they were on her fingers which may have indicated a sign of a struggle but other than those few abrasions that were on the fingers there really wasn't anything else dr oliver ended up ruling her death undetermined because he was actually unable to identify how she died um but he was able to determine for certain that she had not drowned However, completely and totally dismissing the official autopsy report, it was still the conjecture of the Cumberland Police Department that Debbie Wolfe had drowned. And not only had she drowned, but that she had committed suicide. Is this giving you flashbacks of the case we covered about two weeks ago with Joanne Ratuk Romain? It certainly is for me. The police department suggested that Debbie must have died due to immersion syndrome, which, if you don't know what that is, it's a condition caused by prolonged exposure to water. They thought that Debbie had gotten into the pond because she was playing with her dogs and that she had fallen in. That's it. That's their theory. She, like, fell in because she was playing with her dogs, and she drowned, and she's dead now. That's their theory. You heard me. That's their well-thought-out theory, that she just fell into a pond that was like a foot, like five feet deep at the deepest and drowned. But you'd have to be in the water for a freaking long time before water literally has to be absorbed within your skin for so long that it starts to break down the molecular structure of your skin. 
that's what immersion uh, syndrome is. So yeah, that doesn't seem likely, especially when you learn that Debbie was like five, six. If she had begun to experience symptoms of immersion syndrome, such as swelling, pain, and sensory disturbances, she literally could have just walked out of the lake. And plus, immersion syndrome doesn't just happen suddenly. There are signs well before it comes to the point where it's dangerous. Most people who die of immersion syndrome are people whose boats have like capsized or sunken in the middle of the ocean or a large lake, and they are literally unable to make it to shore. They don't die like that in just a tiny little pond where salvation is a mere 32 feet away. The signs of immersion syndrome are like swelling of the legs and feet, blistering and redness, and none of these were at all mentioned in the autopsy report. So it's just incredibly strange that the police department kind of latched onto this idea and ran with it. There's literally no scientific evidence to back their theory up. The coroner also noted that he didn't think Debbie's body had been in the lake since December 25th. There were no signs of bloating, which if you remember from our second episode with Alonzo Brooks, it's a tall tell sign that someone has been in a body of water for a long period of time. If Debbie had entered the water either of her own volition or had been placed there, surely there would be signs of bloating after being in the water for five to seven days. The coroner stated that he believed Debbie's body had been placed in the water post-mortem shortly before she was discovered. Also, don't even get me started on that barrel. Did they seriously think that she just accidentally got into a barrel? You know how you do. I really just hate it when that happens. Like I'm just swimming out in a pond and oopsie daisies, I'm trapped in a barrel. Get real. Kevin Gordon also stated that upon discovering Debbie, she did not have any mud or soot on her clothing or shoes. And he also said that it took him and Gordon Childress, his friend, three days to get all that crap off their clothes and their equipment. So it just does not seem plausible that she did this to herself. She most definitely was met with foul play and placed into that pond. This is clearly obvious. But it's not obvious if you're a Cumberland police officer because... The drowning theory, the immersion syndrome, was their story, and they're sticking to it. Do you guys remember that country song from way back when? That's my story, that's my story, now that's my story. Well, I ain't got a witness, and I can't prove it, but that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That must be like the Cumberland Police Officer, but Cumberland Police Department's like theme song. <laughs> to make matters worse. A few days after discovering Debbie's body, officers just flat out denied that a 55-gallon barrel had ever existed. Yeah, they claimed that what Kevin and Gordon thought was a barrel was in fact not a barrel at all. It was actually Debbie's rust-colored jacket that just looked like a barrel because it was ballooned out as she was floating in the water at the bottom of the pond. Come again? What's that now? You think two guys, who I'm going to assume are not the two biggest idiots in the world, confused a light rust-colored jacket with a 55 metal gallon drum? Are you freaking for real? 
I am so confused. And so was Jenny. Debbie's mom, Jenny, said that she was there as police officers organized and attempted to figure out how on earth that they were going to get this barrel out of the pond and transport it to the police department to gather evidence off of it. They drained the lake and they got the barrel out of the lake and then they didn't even bother taking it with them because they left it there overnight. And somehow during the night, Someone took the barrel and has never, ever been seen again. Most likely due to their incompetency of just leaving the barrel at the crime scene and not taking care of it, the police tried to play it off like the barrel had never even existed. Kevin and Gordon refuted the police's theory and said that it was most definitely a metal barrel and not a jacket. Jenny's mom said that she saw the barrel after they had pulled it out of the lake and it had been taken by the department for a closer inspection. Jenny also said that the barrel was familiar to her because Debbie had purchased a barrel exactly like that to store her firewood. And now that barrel was missing. There was even an impression in the grass of where a barrel had once been stored. I mean, hello, what more do you want? So, Some articles that I read said that they got the barrel out of the lake and then they left it there and then it disappeared. And then some of the articles that I read said that the police officers took the barrel with them and then they lost it. So that's just kind of the problem that we run into and that we face when we're covering old cases because we just kind of have to rely on old articles that sometimes give conflicting stories. So I just want to present both of them to you and then you guys can know and then you guys can make your own decision. Um, so there's all these people saying that they saw a huge 55-gallon barrel. A barrel is missing from Debbie's property and these idiotic police officers are like, barrel? What barrel? Did you see a barrel? I didn't see a barrel. Needless to say, after investigators took this barrel or left the barrel at the property, still missing. Despite the insistence from police that this was all just a tragic accident, Jenny wasn't buying it at all. Two months later, Debbie's clothes that she had um, been discovered in were returned to her mother. However, the clothes given to Jenny were not Debbie's. uh, Jenny received brown corduroy pants that were two sizes too big, um, a bra that was three sizes too big, and for some reason, a lot of the articles I read, mostly if not all, were written exclusively exclusively by men, felt the need to disclose what bra size Debbie was and what size bra Debbie was found in. And I'm like, come on, that seems highly unnecessary and obnoxious if we're being quite honest. Apparently men will use any excuse that they can come up with to talk about boobies, even when it's certainly in poor taste. Like, my goodness, she has passed away. Leave Debbie and her bra size alone. It was three sizes too big. So the bra size that Debbie was, the size that she like normally wore, well, you see, the bra that she was found in, that bra was three sizes bigger than that. Use your brain. The bra was too big. Yep, it was too big. Do you got it? You don't need to know exactly what size she was to know that three sizes too big means it was too big. A 
assuming you have a brain, I have every confidence that you'll figure it out without knowing precisely what cup and band size she was. Let's give Debbie the dignity that she deserves by not disclosing to the world her body measurements. Anyway, she was also found in a black Steelers t-shirt and a men's size small army jacket. Now, Debbie had owned an army jacket But the jacket Debbie owned was a men's size large because it had actually been her brother's and it was found inside of her closet. So this obviously couldn't have been hers. The jacket had no name tag on it, so there was literally no way that they could trace it or identify where it had come from. She was also wearing Nike shoes that were three sizes too big for her and not even a woman's size. So Debbie wore a woman's size seven and the shoes were a men's size seven. These shoes also had no mud or silt on them. The pond was surrounded and caked in mud. So if she had been anywhere near that pond, there would have been mud on them. Jenny petitioned the department to see if the shoes had been cleaned up or altered in any way before being returned to her. And the department admitted that no, They had not cleaned them or done anything to them prior to being returned to Jenny. This, to me, alone discounts the immersion syndrome theory. How could police believe that she drowned or succumbed to immersion syndrome when there was no mud anywhere on her clothes or shoes? It's just really confusing to me that they are so adamant about supporting this ridiculous theory, but they also acknowledge that there was never any mud or silt on the shoes. Is your mind as completely boggled by this as mine? Because seriously, it should be. If you remember earlier, when we were discussing the short-sleeved nurse's uniform that Debbie's father found laid out on the floor perfectly um, right after Debbie's disappearance, it is later discovered that it could not have possibly been the uniform that she had been wearing the day that she disappeared. The reason they came to this conclusion was that apparently during Debbie's final shift at work on Christmas Day, she had gone out for coffee during her lunch break with a co-worker. The co-worker says that he knows that Debbie had worn a long-sleeved uniform that day because this co-worker had accidentally spilled his coffee on Debbie's shirt, and Debbie had a brown stain on the sleeve of her shirt for the remainder of the day. The uniform that she had worn that day with a coffee stain hasn't been found to this day either. Interesting to note, Debbie's car was not parked in its usual position when Jenny and Kevin arrived. When the car was searched, it was discovered that the driver's seat had been pushed all the way back, when normally Debbie had it all the way forward because she was 5'5 and she was the only one who drove that car. Dr. Goodwin has later investigated this case, and he claims that when Debbie's body was discovered, there was semen present inside of her. However, in 1985, DNA profiling was obviously not as awesome and great as it is today, and since then, the vaginal swab taken from Debbie has gone missing. Or maybe it never existed, perhaps along with a 55-gallon barrel, which, as you may recall, doesn't exist either. Good grief. Now, let's go over some theories. The first theory is the theory the police put forward that this was an accidental drowning. Now, we are all pretty smart cookies around here, and so I think it's fair to say that myself and all of you listeners know for a fact that this is literally just a bunch of freaking crap. In an effort to not 
sound too redundant because I know we've spent a long time discussing this stupid theory. I'll just give some quick bullet points. <clears throat> no bloating, no discoloration, no mud on shoes or clothing, only a half teaspoon of water in her airway, and don't even get me started on that mother effing barrel that police are just in complete denial ever existed. She did not just get into a barrel, hop herself 37 feet, and drown with only a half a teaspoon in her mouth in a relaxed position, which literally cannot even happen when a body drowns. Get real. Another theory is what I'll refer to as Jenny's theory. Jenny believes her daughter had been stalked, attacked, sexually assaulted, and killed. Uh, She then believes that she was placed in a barrel and put out into the lake Some believe that Debbie was not killed at her home at all, but in fact driven to a second location where she was sexually assaulted and murdered. I think that this probably stems from the driver's seat being pulled all the way back, alluding to the idea that someone incredibly tall had been driving the car, presumably her attacker and murderer. Under this theory, it's possible that the man from the voicemail is in fact the perpetrator, and I'm keen to believe this theory as well. Police did find this man, the man who had left the voicemail. Um, He actually kind of worked with Debbie. So Debbie was in charge at the Veterans Hospital um, with coordinating the volunteers. So this guy was a volunteer. So he would have engaged with Debbie a lot at work. He apparently had a crush on Debbie and he had attempted to date her by asking her on like a plethora of dates. Um, And she had rejected all of his advancements because she was in a relationship. Debbie's friends and family confirmed um, that he had asked her on dates as well because I think that she talked to them about it. Police met with this man and apparently cleared him of any involvement. And since the Cumberland police has shown us time and time again just how thorough they are, I am completely confident with their screening of this certain individual. Not. Also, after being released, this man, this man who left the sketchy voicemail, drumroll please, fled the state, which I can only imagine because it appears there's a pattern to the Cumberland Sheriff's Department that they were most that they most likely wrote this off as hmm, an interesting coincidence and didn't pursue this lead any further. Hello, can you say red flag number two? Now, if this doesn't scream suspicious to investigators, then I don't think anything short of a confession will convince these big old dummies that Debbie was murdered. And maybe even still, even if they got a confession, they probably wouldn't believe it either. Now, like I said, Debbie was well-loved and adored at work, and so she actually had two guys at work pursuing her, as well as her boyfriend. Yeah, Debbie Wolf was a babe. You feel me? Get it? Got it good. Moving on. So this other guy was another male volunteer. Um, He, however, was a bit more persistent and kind of like aggressive about his pursuing of Debbie. He, He like just really wouldn't take no for an answer, I guess, which riles me up like none other. I get it, dude. You like her, but guess what? She's just not that into you. It's a really great film. Rent it off of Amazon, watch it, and get over yourself. Debbie had mentioned to coworkers and friends that this guy just 
really made her feel uncomfortable. So this guy was also questioned by police and police thought that he might be good for it. So they asked him if he would be willing to take a polygraph test. However, he adamantly refused and they didn't really have any evidence to directly link him to the crime. Other than that, he was just a huge sketchball. And so they eventually had to let him go. Theory number three is that this was a robbery gone bad. Um, while the house was in disarray, nothing was missing. I am so pissed that no one had the foresight to collect one of those empty beer cans that had been discarded all over the property because, in my personal opinion, I firmly believe that if they had kept one, they would have been able to pull a DNA profile from them and that DNA would lead them to Debbie's killer. We also cannot discount the most obvious theory, which isn't really discussed much in any of the articles that I read, um, but, you know, obviously the boyfriend. In my research, and probably in your research as true crime lovers, um, I, like I said, did not find, I mean, we know that that's usually who it is. It's usually the boyfriend or the husband or, like, somebody who's in love with her, but I did not find much information regarding a formal investigation into the boyfriend. I mean, I have to assume that he was interviewed and looked into, um, but we really can't assume too much when it comes to the Cumberland PD, at least not in the 80s, because they clearly had no clue whatsoever, and they were way in over their head. So I'm going to give it a guess that the investigators just flat out asked him if he did it, and the boyfriend said no, and they were like, right on, man. See you later. Another thought is that whoever disposed of Debbie's body must have known or been close enough to the investigation that they knew when it would be safe to bring Debbie's body in the barrel back when no one is going to be there. And again, that's just my own personal opinion. Could it have been the boyfriend? I don't know. Could it have been family friend Kevin Gordon? I mean, he had been there from the beginning of the investigation. Or maybe it could have been Gordon Childress. He did find the footprints and drag marks in what Kevin said was like two minutes. Is it possible that Gordon was able to discover Debbie so quickly because he knew exactly where to look? Could Debbie have been taken hostage and kept alive for several days and then killed shortly before her body was discovered in the pond? These are questions I'm not sure will ever be answered. Some locals believe the police, or one of their own, was somehow involved in the murder and that they were covering it up to protect someone, either someone on the force or someone related to someone on the force. And I totally get where they're coming from. I mean, let's face it, they did a super crappy job in the initial investigation. The barrel was placed in the pond when they knew no one would be there. They keep insisting that it was a drowning, although there's no evidence to support that. And they lost the vaginal swab. They lost the barrel. The barrel that they are now claiming never even existed. I don't think it's too far of a cry to think that they could be involved. Personally, I feel like it has to be the man who left that voicemail. It just doesn't make sense that he would leave it when she had only been missing for four hours and, like, not have something to do with it. 
I know that police say that they interviewed him and cleared him, but forgive me for not putting any trust in them. They certainly haven't earned my trust or respect when it comes to working this investigation, so yeah, no. Now, I didn't strictly decide to cover this case today because the 35th anniversary is coming up this Saturday. I actually decided to do this case because I learned that Debbie's mother died in 2004, her father died in 2008, and on top of that, her brothers John and Joseph also recently passed away. This case was officially closed by the Cumberland Police Department, and it has been closed for many, many years. So, With all of Debbie's immediate family members being deceased, no one is really actively pursuing justice for Debbie at this moment in time, and I just find that to be incredibly sad. With all that being said, what do you guys make of this case? Do you think Debbie's death was an accident? Do you think she met with foul play? Who do you think is most likely to be the perpetrator of this heinous crime? What do you guys make of the police work, if you can even call it that? Let me know in the comments of the post that I'm posting this morning on at Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram. I, of course, am always so excited to hear your thoughts, theories, and opinions, so please share them with me. I hope that you all have an amazing Christmas. I know it's not going to be ideal, but I hope that you are still able to find peace and happiness this holiday season. I love you guys and appreciate you all for sticking with me and finding the humor and the heaviness with me. You guys are amazing. Please never forget that. All right, everyone. I'll see you next week when together we'll discover. Did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?